BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we talk about the craft of writing with Amor Tolls, best-selling author of the novels A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility. California is the intended destination of the characters in his latest work called The Lincoln Highway, about a band of travelers seeking a fresh start. We'll talk with Tolls about his own journey as a writer and the themes that unite his novels. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Lincoln Park in San Francisco is the ultimate destination for the band of travelers and seekers in Amortals' latest novel called The Lincoln Highway, but their journey is defined by detours, reversals, and recalibrations, which is in a way how Tolls describes the way he writes, adapting to surprises that surface from his characters. And Amortals joins us now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me, Mina. It's a pleasure Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And, and Amor, you've said that all your books start with a notion. Can you tell us about the notion that led to the Lincoln Highway? Sure. Uh, and it's true. I've been writing fiction since I was a kid. I've had many ideas for stories or books over the course of my life. And usually the idea comes as a little conceit or a premise that could be in a sentence. And in the case of the Lincoln Highway, I think readers of it would guess this, but I had this notion of a young man returning from doing a little time in a juvenile work farm um, and the warden driving him home, him thinking that he's going to get to start his life fresh, but it turns out that there are two friends from the work farm who've hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. And that's really kind of where I began, which is sort of this notion of the honorable kid going home, having paid his debt to society, but two people having uh, hidden and stowed away in the trunk. How do you know that you come upon something that will work? Like, what does that feel like? <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't, of course. <laughs> but I think that for me, if you imagine that you sort of get these different ideas at different times, and what ends up happening is that certain of the ideas really grab my imagination more strongly than the others. And I find myself dwelling on them really over a period of years, imagining mm-hmm. what, who are these people? What happens to them? What are the environments in which they travel through? You know, what does this mean for these various characters? And and the more that the original premise draws me back into an ongoing thought process of imagination, the stronger an indication to me that, yeah, this is a story that might be worth telling. So what was the thought process around making California the intended ultimate destination for the travelers in the Lincoln Highway? I mean, we're all familiar with sort of the myth of the westward journey to the Golden State, full of promise, and so on. Um, and your characters actually never make it <laughs> No, that's <here>. right. That's <laughs> and they don't right. even move in a westward direction. But can yeah. you talk about this a little bit? And, and I, I think I had somebody, you know, say, uh, they never even make it to California. One star, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think I got to get a nice review like that. Um, I, 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 yeah, 
from the, they are, they are, they be, the story begins really in Nebraska. So it's in the dead center of the country uh, from an east-west standpoint, close to the dead center from a north-south standpoint. And, uh, and you've got sort of the whole country around you. And it's clear that, the, that Emmett, our hero, who's 18, uh, his father has died while he was in prison. His mother is long gone. The farm is in foreclosure. He wants, and he doesn't want to be a farmer. So he wants to start anew, and that's clear. And he thinks he's going to go to Texas because he figures there's money to be made in Texas as a worker. But his younger brother has discovered a, a group of postcards that his father had hidden away that his mother, that their mother had sent in the year after, in the days after she abandoned the family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 10 years before, eight years before. And they lead to California. Um, and, and that, and so the, the younger brother says, that's where we got to go. Uh, we got to go find her in California. I, I think for an American storyteller, you can't help but uh, look westward <laughs> when you have a, even if you don't end up getting there, when you're having a story about uh, desire, about dreams, about uh, the evolution of a life, um, because so much of the propulsion of American history was a westward motion. Well, Amor, we invited listeners to write in questions ahead of the show, um, as well as, of course, during. Listeners can post their comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or email forum at kqed.org. As always, our phone lines are open at 866-733-6786. And we got a couple of responses. Carol writes, I gave this book to all my siblings in Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa at Christmas and encouraged our book club to read Tools' latest book. Why? I was born and raised on or next to the Lincoln Highway in Nebraska and know it for being the connective tissue across the country. I was first intrigued by the subject, even though there is little actually about the highway. What I fell in love with were the four main characters who were each written with brilliance, depth, and beauty. I found the depth of each individual character story not only part of an epic journey, but a brushstroke of genius. As a writer myself, I appreciated the nuances within the characters as well as the plot were a storyline for, for America." We were all there. And of course, what Carol reveals is that the Lincoln Highway is a thing. It's a real thing. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Did you drive segments of it as part of your research? Or? Well, you know, well, first of all, thanks to Carol. I know, beautiful lovely, comment. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite kind of question, right? <laughs> but uh, um, uh, I, I did not know of the Lincoln Highway when I began designing this book. And I'll spend a couple of years imagining the story before I finally outline it and begin to write it. And during that much of that process, I had never heard of the highway. And in my notes, it says that when the characters leave the farm, and instead of taking a left and going to California, they take a right and go to New York, it would just say they took Route X. And as I was getting deeper into the design of the story, and I finally needed to pinpoint the actual route, I discovered this road. And the Lincoln Highway is, in fact, the first highway that crossed the United States. And as soon as I began to read about it, I was like, oh, my God, this is, the, this is a perfect uh, metaphor in a way for the, the entire uh, adventure of the story, as it were, thematically speaking. Because, and and, and, in a, and a, a perfect metaphor for an American tale, because the Lincoln Highway was really the invention of a man named Carl Fisher, who was born in poverty, dropped out of school as a teenager in the, 18, uh, in the 1890s, and, um, and made a fortune— making one of uh, the first headlights for the automobile industry. 
and uh, retired after selling the company at the age of 37 and being worth about $150 million at the time in today's money, but was restless. And so he went on and built the Indianapolis International Speedway. He launched the Indy 500. He founded Miami Beach. Um, and eventually he thought, you know, there needs to be a road that crosses the country. And at note, there was no road that did so. And at the time, 90% of American roads were dirt. And he wanted it to be a paved road. So he did it. He raised money from the public and built this, uh, this road that begins in Times Square, New York City. And as you mentioned earlier, ends in Lincoln Park here in San Francisco. And he really did it as a patriotic uh, idea. He wanted American citizens to be able to see the country. Mm-hmm. And five years before uh, he built the highway or they, you know, the highway was built, only about 100 Americans would drive across the country in any given year. Because it was a trial to cross the country at the time. Uh, you had to carry your fuel, your water, medical supplies, equipment, tents, you know, the whole thing. And uh, when he built the road around 1915, within five years, 20,000 Americans would drive across the country on the Lincoln Highway. And it was the most famous road in America by far. But the, the highway system of the 1950s that was built under Eisenhower uh, made the Lincoln Highway obsolete. It is still there. There's still a sign in Times Square. There's still a terminus here in San Francisco. You can still drive it, but it's a relatively quaint and rural road uh, by modern standards. And so, as I say, all of this, to me, sort of was perfect thematic material that this entrepreneur, this young entrepreneur had come from nothing, built this thing uh, to change the way Americans sort of traveled their own country, and yet it became obsolete at the same time. It's a fascinating story, though I have to say I'm struck by something you said at the very beginning of your answer, which is that you said you spent a few years outlining this story. So, yes. so outlining, is that a big part of your process? Yeah, and I, I mean, more fully, I would call it design in the sense that I really do try to imagine every aspect of a book that I'm working on before I sit down to write it. And so I will take a couple of years working with notebooks slowly investigating the characters, the settings, the events, the language and tone of the tale, some of the thematics, some of the imagery, some of the dialogue, and, and to the point where I really know the story from beginning to end with a, with a great deal of granularity, and that's when I then start to sit down and write paragraphs. And what does that allow for, just having thought through the outline so much, so thoroughly ahead of time? Yeah, it's counter, there's sort of a counterintuitive aspect of that. I mean, I appreciate you asking because I think it's very, you might think, well, he does all this planning, he's got an outline, it's because he's you know, very uh, systematic and controlled and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a science for him. But in fact, the reason I put so much time and effort into imagining the story in advance and outlining it before I write it is so that while I'm writing a chapter, I don't have to think about what's happening or where it's happening or, or who it's happening to. I know those elements. And so what that really does is it allows me to free up my subconscious while I'm writing the chapter itself and to use, draw on my poetic sensibility to figure out how to describe what's happening, what language to use, what imagery to use, mm. almost like in a dream state. Whereas if, if I don't know all the elements of the chapter, I'm going to have to use a lot of my analytical thought process to figure that stuff out. And that could yes. crowd out the poetic self in that moment. So as I say, uh, counterintuitively, I really use 
advanced thinking design <laughs> outlining as a way of ensuring that when I am writing, it is the poetic self which is driving the process sentence by sentence. It makes perfect sense to me. In many <laughs> ways, God. it's not dissimilar <laughs> to, to how I prepare for, for interviews because you just want to be able to have the conversation flow, but um, you feel more freedom to do that if you have a sense of those analytical pieces. Um, the other thing I was struck by is that you listen to music. I think you said to put you in the suitable frame of mind or mood yes, when you right. are writing, you find that helpful. And actually, we're going to go into the break hearing some of the music that you also shared with with readers uh, that you listen to during the writing of this novel. But do you want to talk a little bit about the role of music in your writing process? Sure, because I, I am at my desk at 8.30 in the morning. And, and I think for any writer, you're, you're, you're starting, you, most of the writers I know, and, and I read, read through history, many of the writers I admire would write first thing. And you're, you're, you're trying to write when nothing else is on your mind and no other distractions, no other anxieties or concerns, no other practical issues. You just want to start fresh as best you can. And, but when you're sitting there fresh and you're facing a chapter uh, you might want to get in the mood. And, and I use music often to get me started in the morning. Well, this is Bonnie Light Horseman, Deep in Love. I don't know if you just want to say 10 seconds about this song. Yeah, I love this album, the Bonnie Light Horseman. This is a beautiful album. It's very American. It's, it sounds like old Americana. It's, it's a little sad, uh, uh, but yet hopeful. And that is kind of way the mood of the story. So even mm. though it, it wasn't music from the 1950s, it, it, it is music that is in harmony with kind of the story that I was telling. What any more tolls listen to while riding the Lincoln Highway? More after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Amor Tolls about the craft of writing and finding inspiration for his most recent novel, The Lincoln Highway. Amor Tolls' other books include A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility. And we want to hear from you, listeners. What questions or comments do you have for Amor Tolls about his writing process, how he finds his stories and creates characters? Have you read any of his novels? Have any of his characters resonated with you? You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And Nandan asks, I read somewhere a definition of the novel as, quote, a long piece of prose with something wrong with it. <laughs> as a novelist, I wonder what he feels about that definition. 
I, I, I like that definition. It's a great, that's a great witticism. And, and there's clearly truth to it because both for the reader and the writer, there is a discovery process where a novel is an investigation. It's an investigation usually with people at the center and, and you're trying to discover who they are, uh, the choices that they're going to make over the course of events and the repercussions of those choices. I mean, you know, for me, if I think about what the novel is for me and why it's been such an effective art form for a few hundred years is that for me, I really think of the novel at its finest as a machine for meaning. If you think of mm. novel writing, it is really a composition of many different elements of craft, uh, you know, plot and setting and dialogue, of course, but point of view and tone of voice and th- the various poetics of metaphor and illusion and allegory. There's literally thousands of elements of craft that are in a novel and at the finest form, they are operating, this enormous disarray of elements are operating in some kind of harmony that engages us and entertains us, but also allows different readers to draw different conclusions about what that book means as they piece together these different elements of craft in their own way to puzzle out what is going on and what does this mean uh, for the characters? What does it mean for me as the reader? And so the, the best novels, as I say, entertain all kinds of people and yet can mean different things to people from different classes and genders and uh, religions and can mean different things to us as we return to them at the age of 20 and 40 and 60. I really want to ask you about how you structured this novel then, especially as as an investigatory process, but also I think for you as you write how how things come to you as you are as you are finding surprises surfacing for you. The whole nearly 600-page book, it takes place over the course of 10 days, and the chapters flow in this reverse order from 10 down to 1, like a countdown. So why did that work for this story, and how did you discover that? Yes, so I, I do like to use structure, and it kind of goes back to that notion we were discussing earlier of having some something that allows me to sort of free up my imagination. So in a way, if there's a structure that I'm working through that, that prompts that. And also a, a structure can unrelease, can release creativity in the way that a sonnet does. A sonnet is very structural. There's rules about it. And yet poets return to it again and again and again to write up on this infinite variety of, of topics. Um, so I, I do use structure. And I started with, uh, this was going to be a 10-day story. I always knew that. It's told from different points of view. So on each day, we might have multiple chapters as we hear from different people and see the events unfold through different uh, eyes. Um, but as I was writing the book, I got about halfway through it and I hit a wall. I, I, I thought it was not working. It was uh, slow. It was cumbersome. It was, it was misguided. Um, it wasn't going where it needed to go. And, and I thought I, you have this moment of real crisis of confidence. And so I step away from the book. And you're wondering whether or not you just got to throw it out and start something new. Mm. And uh, I step away. And, and what ended up happening is is you you kind of have these moments where you suddenly like you have an insight. And so after taking a break for a couple of days, the insight here was that the, the book had been designed as day one, day two, day three, right up to day 10, as you said. And then suddenly I realized, you know, that's not right. It's not that. It, it, this is 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. That's what it is. And, and that's what it is in spirit. Um, in that it is a countdown. These are characters moving towards an unavoidable fate. And in essence, as the 10 days unfold, they're running out of time to, uh, at, at the same time. There's an urgency to events. Um, and, and I wanted that to be a part of the narrative. So I went back and I just changed everything from day one to 10 and day two to nine. I didn't change the order of events. 
But but just the symbolism to me of the 109876 moving towards this terminal, you know, one, as it were, um, the, 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 the way that we launch rockets and the way that we count down the new year and the way that we, the, uh, we end a boxing match, you know, the countdown does all those things. Just changing that allowed me then to go back to the beginning and start to revise with that sense of urgency and momentum and sort of fate in mind for each of the characters and to to build that more tightly into the language so that uh, you could feel it almost from the first day as you're moving forward through the story. Yeah, you, you talk about moving towards that inevitable fate or conclusion. The Lincoln Highway, it's been out for about eight months now. Yes. And I know that the ending has actually been the subject yes. of a lot of questions <laughs> and readers have been contacting you about it. And I'll leave it up to you if you want to say anything about the ending. Well, but what, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, what I can say is, because you're, yeah, I, I certainly don't want to spoil uh, the book for those who have yet to read it. Um, but there, like, like many books, it, there, it ends with, with certain... Uh, it, it does. It should prompt questions, moral questions, and questions about wait, what just happened, and um, and that's fine. Uh, but I had enough questions coming to me saying, you know, I want to understand this aspect or this aspect of the final pages. And so, if you go to amortolls.com, I have a Q and A for all of my books where I've kind of thought about what are some of the questions that readers might be interested in about the making of the book or the background of my thought process or of the symbolism of you know different ideas. But at the bottom of that Q&A is the answers to frequently asked questions. And the very last questions I ask, the answer is, you know, what's with the ending of the Lincoln <laughs> Highway? So for those who really, you know, are, are, are eager to, to get a glimpse of what I think about it, you know, what, what they think about it is what matters more. But if they want to get a glimpse of it, you can go to the Q&A at amortolls.com and, and it, it's there at the bottom, my thoughts about it. Well, well, the reason I bring up the fact that you do get a lot of questions and are contacted a lot by by readers is because I, I do find the fact that you interact with your readers so much that you encourage readers to interact with you, to write you with their questions, um, which I'm not sure is that common among widely published writers. And, and, even, um, and even sort of Take in their their corrections, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. incorporate them sometimes. Yeah, that's that's a bittersweet part of the process, because <laughs> um, because I, yes, I do get uh, uh, readers usually within seven days of a book coming out, they start rolling in. You know, this wasn't that; it's this, and 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 I as I in the case of the Lincoln Highway, there's been a number, and and I will take some of those corrections and I will revisit them in when the book goes from hardcover to paperback. I will revise certain elements of the book. Because uh, the reader's point, I'll say, oh, you know, that's a good point. You know, or, or, I, I agree with that. A lot of the corrections that are suggested, I won't integrate because I'm quite happy with uh, the book. It's not a work of history and, and it is a work of the imagination. And so it doesn't have to be, in my opinion, uh, nailing every little historical uh, point uh, down with a hammer. Um, but as an example, it, there is a moment in the Lincoln Highway where the character Wooly in when he's in boarding school, he's looking, remembering in boarding school that he is frustrated with his thesaurus. He decides to burn it on the football field with gas, <laughs> sort of to make his own point. And when it, the fire gets out of hand and it burns down the goalpost on the football field at his New England boarding school. And he's watching the fire go up the middle post and across the arm and up the arms, you know, across the bar and up the arms and sort of sees it as this great thing of beauty, which ultimately, of course, ends up getting him thrown out of school. And, uh, you know, I had a series of, of emails come in saying, you know, this is a beautiful moment and we love, I love Wooly, but that's not what a, you know, a goalpost in a football looked like in 1954. It looked like an H, not a Y. 
and uh, and I love that, you know. So so that is a case where I will go. I went back and rewrote that section, you know, to describe it as a Y instead of as an H. I'm sorry, as an H instead of a, as a Y. Mm. Um, so so that 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 is a part of the process. But but you know, to to go back to your original observation, it's really an extraordinary thing that in the modern era that you can send out a work of art that you've you know, spent several years writing. It goes out into the distance and. That we can, that I can hear back from people, right? You think about writers in the 19th century, or Jane Austen. You know, she sends out a book that that it goes into a great silence, you know, for for many authors, right? And uh, or it's very hard for feedback to come, and um, and so this it's a great, it's a luxury in a way as a writer to be in a position to have people come back and share what did this book mean to me, and and, and how did it affect me, how did it affect my family. What have I been going through? What was I going through when I read this, and why does that matter? And uh, you know, that's a, that's a very uh, beautiful and satisfying thing for an artist to have an opportunity to hear those kinds of responses. Mm. Well, let's hear a response on the phone, Jenny in San Jose. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Can you hear me? We can. Go yes. right ahead. Oh, good, um, Mr. Tolls. Your new book is one of my all-time favorites now. Thank you. I just flew through the pages. It is enchanting, and your writing style, the, the words just fly off the page. So when I was reading this book, I developed this idea that you may have been thinking of Homer's Odyssey and the journey that Odysseus took. Yep. Then I read... Then I read that another name for Odysseus is Ulysses. Hmm. And that was an automatic, this has to be something that you may have been thinking of, maybe not. But in the Odyssey, Odyssey, Odysseus is trying to get home to Ithaca, to his wife and his son. And I just saw this parallel, and I was curious about that. Okay, uh, and I think your observation is 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 well founded for sure. Uh, and to sort of expand on it, if you think of Western narrative at any rate, uh, one of the most important narratives in the Western canon from the beginning has been the journey story, and and the one that you're describing is right there near the beginning of Western narrative, uh, Homer's Odyssey, in which Ulysses is trying to get home over a ten year period. Uh, we then have the Aeneid uh, in, under, in, you know, in the Roman era, uh, written by Virgil in Latin, where Aeneas leaves the same war as Ulysses, but he's trying to go find someplace new and start a new life uh, in that epic. Uh, at the early stages of English narrative, we have Chaucer's uh, Canterbury Tales with the, uh, them on the road, again, on their way to Canterbury, sharing stories as they walk. In the beginning, the very, many say the novel begins with uh, Don Quixote. Uh, Cervantes' great piece, which is a narrative. And then, of course, we have the whole line of, of American journey narratives that begin with our greatest, which is Moby Dick, and then ultimately end up on the road, uh, whether that's through Grapes of Wrath or On the Road or the other works like that. So the journey narrative, as I say, is a very old and important narrative in the Western canon, and it makes sense because the the, Amer- the Western storytelling tends to be about individuals or an individual or a group of individuals and the changes they are going through 
and in life, they face obstacles, they take actions, there are repercussions, uh, they either learn from that or fail to, their fate is defined by uh, the decisions they've made. That's the center, that's the heart of Western narrative, almost to a, every story, you know, at some level, that's what's going on. And, and so the journey was a very natural story to tell, because in a way, it's a physical representation of that internal process of meeting obstacles, overcoming them and, uh, and going through changes yourself. So in when I'm starting this story about a group of young men and a young woman, you know, all around 18 and one 18, eight year old boy too, basically at the edge of adulthood, about to launch into that phase of their life where they define their lives for themselves and they're in movement, it was very natural to bring the history of sort of Western narrative up through the story, as it were. And it appears initially, and that's part of the way one of the reasons why I came up with this notion of Billy carrying this book of 26 different heroes from mm-hmm. history, um, a number of which are, are journey-related stories, including the Odyssey. Well, Denny, thanks for the question and observation. This listener asks, was it daunting to start a new book after the crazy success of A Gentleman from Moscow? I, 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 did, I really didn't think about it too much. I, I have the luxury, I mean, in a way of, well, it's a luxury to have A Gentleman from Moscow to be a success, but, but of, of facing the new book at a, in my 50s. I think I, I think it would be a harder thing to make the transition in my 20s. Um, but it, I'm in my, I'm 57 years old. So, I, I, you know, when I was sitting down to write Lincoln Highway, I had two teenagers in the house. You know? And, uh, and you know, they, they're, they're not, uh, and I've been, through, I've had a career separate from writing in the course of my life in New York, because I was in the investment business for 20 years. And um, so for me, you know, you got your teenagers keeping your head on your shoulders, right? Uh, you know, they're not impressed by the success of, of my prior, prior book, you know, and so why should I be? And, uh, and so, it, but it, it really is, I approach it with, at this stage in my life saying, I've wanted to write my whole life. Now I'm doing it. In a way, I'm running out of time. And so for me, it's really, I'm going to clear the calendar for the next three years and invest myself in a new story. Is it something that I'm interested in telling? Is it a, is it going to, in, you know, how intricate a story it is, how poetic is it, how thematic is it? And if, if I can feel that those things are there, then I'm good to go. And I'm not worried about, is it going to be popular? Is it going to sell? Is who's going to read it? It's really, am I going to, it's really, because I'm so excited to have the, the three or four years that I'm going to get to spend developing this world. Um, you know, that's mm-hmm. the primary focus for me. Well, you do reward readers who've read your previous works. I, you put Easter eggs of sorts That's in your true. book for those readers who've read Gentlemen in Moscow or or um, your your first book, Rules of Civility. Do you want to share what some of those are in yeah. Lincoln Highway or why you do that? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I, I think it dates back to I, I, I loved reading Faulkner as a younger person. He's a great hero of mine. And 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 he and his Yoknapatafa County, his invented county, where the majority of his writing was taking place, the the characters would sort of end up in each other's books and, the, and, and old stories from the past would get referenced in various books and individual buildings would show up. And I just loved that as a, as a reader. And, and it sort of had this element of when you'd run into one of these overlapping elements, it was like a door opening up in the story you were reading and in through that door floods all of the elements of that other book that you had read and, and sort of suddenly has a chance to resonate with what you're reading now. Um, and so, I yes, my books tend to have elements like that, which are sort of for the fun of it, um, but hopefully 
for close readers of mine that, you know, it adds to the overall experience of the reading process too. In The Lincoln Highway and Rules of Civility, there are a number of key overlapping elements. There's a central character of The Lincoln Highway who's the nephew of a central character in Rules of Civility. There's a watch which trades hands in both books, the same watch. There's a building, the Adirondacks, which both stories uh, visit near in the, in the latter half of each book, um, the same house. And, and so there is sort of these moments of resonance. I, I think the, the biggest sort of one that's kind of the most hilarious for me in a way is that as I was finishing The Lincoln Highway, and here's this book set in June of 1954, the last 10 days, I suddenly realized, oh, you know, hey, I, mean, I was literally like seven, 75% of, through writing the book. I was like, hey, you know, Gentleman Moscow ends in June of 1954. <laughs> And I, and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so I tinkered with my timeline a little bit. And what, what now, if you've read those two books or if you read those two books, the culminating moment of A Gentleman in Moscow is at midnight on the 21st of June, 1954, when all the telephones in the Hotel Metropole ring in the final pages of the story. And if you read The Lincoln Highway, the culminating event in that book uh, with Billy and Emmett getting into the Studebaker that occurs on June 21st, 1954 at 5 p.m. And given the time change of seven hours, that means that the two books conclude at the same moment in, <laughs> in historical time. You know? Wow. And I love that. You know, that's a crazy, silly thing, but I love it. We're talking with Amor Tolls about his most recent novel, The Lincoln Highway, and his other books, which include A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility. And what questions or comments do you have for Amor Tolls about his writing process, his books, his characters, and so on? Share them at 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with bestselling author Amor Tolls about his latest book, The Lincoln Highway, which focuses on three 18-year-old boys on a journey in 1950s America, also with an eight-year-old boy. It lasts only 10 days or so. And we're also talking about his writing process for this and his other books, Gentlemen in Moscow and Rules of Civility. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. And Sheridan writes, it is such a treat to get to hear from Amor Tolls about his writing process. Count Rostov, the hero of A Gentleman in Moscow, was such a richly developed, lovable character. My question is whether the Count is inspired by someone Mr. Tolls knows. 
the count is an invention. And in fact, all of my characters are inventions. I don't, I don't base them on, on anybody in particular. And I, I, I've been writing fiction since I was a kid, as I said. And, and that is, I think, at the heart of serious narrative writing is, is the goal of trying to learn how to invent people. That, that's, of course, what makes Shakespeare so extraordinary. You know, it's what makes Dickens so extraordinary, Tolstoy extraordinary, is these people that, have, that are invented on the page in their narratives, they live with us. We remember them. We understand them. We can visualize them. Uh, we care about them. And, and this is really the goal uh, you know, that we should set ourselves as, as, as narrative writers. And so over the course of my life, I've, I've tried to train myself and practice uh, by constantly writing from different perspectives, writing different stories about different people in different situations, trying to see the world at, through their eyes. And eventually you, it becomes second nature to you. As you imagine a story, you can suddenly see the person who would be at the center of it. And as you begin to write and imagine the story in greater detail, you get a sharper and sharper understanding of them. And, uh, and the count is, is a part of that process. And I'll just say one other thing about it is that um, one of the funny things about about the process for me is that when there's a something in a book of mine that is particularly meaningful to somebody, you know, somebody will say, "Oh, I, you know, I, I, this passage in Magellan Moscow, I think, is is particularly insightful or moving, or you know, I wrote it down and to send it to my daughter, or I read it out loud to my husband or my wife or whatever." Ninety nine percent of the time, when somebody says that to me. Uh, what they're talking about is some insight in the in the book or some passage that I never would have had on my own in the course of my own life. It's not an idea that I would ever have thought of. It's not something I would say to my children or to a friend or for my own benefit. Uh, that insight or poetic passage is the byproduct of the writing process. I am I have created this person who I am not, who has a background and personality that are different than mine. I have then put them in a situation in which I have not been. And suddenly, while that person is in that situation, they look out at the world and say, you know, the thing about it is da-da-da-da-da-da. And when those come, they come very quickly. I can kind of type them really quickly and then sort of hit the period and think, well done, Count. You really nailed that. You know, what a great, what an amazing observation. And that's the way it comes, you know. And I think that's part of the, the beauty of the writing process, hopefully the reading process, is that we can displace ourselves uh, into a different background, a different personality, a different situation. And that can prompt a genuine insight or a genuine uh, sentiment that we can share empathetically. I think you're answering this other listener, Juliet's point. Juliet writes, what I love about Toll's writing is the way he brings character and place to life in such vivid detail. I'd be curious to know what his process is here. Does he have a picture in his mind's eye that he transmits to the page? Does he craft the detail ahead of time and then put it to paper? Does it flow from the immediacy or writing, or is it something else altogether? As I said, you you sort of partially answered this. I don't yeah. know if you want to add any more. I, the case. thing I would add, is, and that goes back again to your question about design. I think the, yeah. the more time I spend imagining it in advance, the sharper that, that I can realize the uh, characters and the events for uh, readers. But the piece that we haven't talked about really is the editing piece. And, and mm-hmm. I can, very often for me, the editing process is about... Taking, you know, going from draft one to draft two, for instance, is about increasing or improving the economy of the draft. And that means removing words, you know, removing lots of them, removing events, scenes, comments, getting it down to a sharper realization. And, and this is important because 
it's what, to some degree, again, a little counterintuitive, it's what helps bring to life, I think, the characters and the events, is that if we go on too long as writers uh, or sort of too self-involved with the telling of events, it doesn't feel like life anymore. We, 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 the reader can become, you know, their eyes glaze over and, and everything else, and, and it feels like the, the author's listening to himself, you know. And, but so you have to get it down to this sharper version of itself because in a way that's the way we experience, we, have, uh, we experience life itself, right, is in this very crisp, fast-moving quality, and you're trying to capture that in the book, uh, in, in language. And one of the interesting things that happens to me, and this has happened in all of my books, in the transition from draft one to two to three, the amount of space dedicated to the top four or five characters is shrinking because I'm getting it down to the essence of what you need to know about them. And the amount of time that is spent looking at the world through the, the eyes of the secondary and tertiary characters is growing. And so I'm kind of carving, I'm, I'm reducing the amount of time spent with the, with the central characters and giving more time to the secondary characters to try to bring them more sharply to life. Well, Sarah emailed this ahead of the show. What is Amor's favorite kind of protagonist? And why uh, why does he write them the way he does? They're often clever, patient, mature, and the plot seems to rotate around that orbit. Yeah, I, I, and that, that's probably... I, I, sh- I should go into therapy to get the answer to that question. <laughs> or I should ask my wife. I, I don't know. Um, but, I, you know, it, it, is, it is true that... Um, you're, uh, for me, the process of writing a book is a multi-year process. I do it alone. I don't share anything I've written until the first draft is complete and been cleaned up. So it's it's very solitary over that multi-year time frame. And so I got to like the company of the characters, right? You know, I, they, I have to, I have to be, they have to be people I would like to know. I would like to spend time with. I'm interested in. Uh, they surprise me. Um, you know, I'm trying to understand them better, you know, through the process of the, of the storytelling and invention. Um, all those things have to be a part of it uh, true. So I think that it's sort of natural then to, find, good or bad, to have a little bit of charisma in the central characters, whether that's the Count or Katie, you know, or Duchess in the Lincoln Highway. These are people with very different moral profiles. And uh, yet I think that they, and they're very different backgrounds and very, they sound very different, but they have a certain charisma that is a part of uh, of who they are and that's helpful to me as the writer during this multi-year process and hopefully then you know becomes uh, intriguing to the reader too well the other thing that connects your novels and and what sort of holds true about the characters are the children in them i'm thinking about eight-year-old billy and the lincoln highway and nina the curious nine-year-old and a gentleman in moscow they're they're earnest they're Information sponges, they have a strong sense of, of morality in some ways. Yes. What philosophies or experience guide how you write your child characters? Uh, I, you know, I, so my, my children, I have a now a, a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old. And, and, but when I was writing A Gentleman in Moscow, I had a you know, five-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. And, and every now and then, uh, often an, uh, an older person, older than I am even, uh, <laughs> would say to me, oh, you know, I love, you know, Nina and Billy, but of course, you know, children aren't like that at all. And, and you could tell that they haven't lived with children for a while, you know, <laughs> because children are exactly like that, you know, in my opinion, you know, they, they are, uh, they're smarter than we, we 
than you might think initially. They're they're more nuanced. They're more in you know they're more complex. And and you spend time with an eight year old, and that all gets made clear to you very quickly. You know when you're living with an eight year old day to day. Um, they're not sort of this undeveloped, uh, simplistic you know version of a, of a human being. You know they're they're very intricate and uh, and open eyed and wise in their way. And, and I think that what's interesting to sort of part of the exploration of the Lincoln Highway is to have this 18-year-old boy, Emmett, at the heart and his 8-year-old brother, who are suddenly alone in the world, as it were, you know, aside from their friends, but just as a family unit. And the 18-year-old and 8-year-old is a very different moment in life. You know, the 18-year-old is, is, is exposed to things that have made him or her more cynical. And they, in theory, have a more practical view of the world, a more expansive view of the world, perhaps a colder view of the world. And they're just the beginning of of that process, which may make them more cynical or, or less so over time. But that's very different than being the eight-year-old. And uh, and what I like about the what happens in the Lincoln Highway is the way in which the eight-year-old can influence the 18-year-old and vice versa. You know, these two siblings bring their own sort of points of view towards each other and that Billy benefits from that and but so does Emmett. Emmett benefits from uh, the expo the the time spent with Billy Ulysses, the mm. the older African American character uh, and Billy I think you know their relationship in a way is my favorite relationship in the book um, in that way that a, a you know 55 year old man and an, and an eight year old child who they've never met and are from two different races, very different experiences yet can have a meeting of the minds in some way and and benefit from that mutually uh, as they take different things from each other. Yeah. Can I ask you about your own journey as a writer? You've mentioned earlier the fact that you wrote before and then sort of took a detour and then yeah. returned to writing. Can you talk about that journey a little bit? Sure. Uh, you know, I, as I said, I began writing as a kid and I wrote in college. I, I came out here to, uh, went to graduate school at Stanford and wrote fiction while I was at Stanford on, on a fiction writing fellowship there. Um, and uh, I then moved to New York City at the age of uh, 25 or so and was a little feeling a little claustrophobic in the writing process, was feeling a little lonely, was broke. And so I joined a friend of mine who had started an investment firm. And 20 years later, we were still working side by side. And the first 10 years of that uh, life as an investment professional, I stopped writing. And, and that was a very, my job was great. It was a lot of, it was fun. It was interesting. It, uh, we had great clients, great colleagues, a great craft, all terrific. Um, but I, I was living with this sort of dread that uh, maybe, you know, if I, if I don't get back to writing fiction at some point, I'm, I'm really going to be disappointed and, and, uh, in myself and, and, and probably bitter, maybe a drinker, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, so after 10 years on the job, I began, I, f- I figured out, okay, I got to start writing on the weekends and figure out how to craft this out. And I spent seven years writing a book I didn't like and set that aside, but I learned a lot from that. And then I wrote rules of civility. And then when that became a bestseller, I retired from my firm. Um, and so in retrospect, one of the interesting things about it, I guess, is that I've always loved fiction. It's, it's, I love it almost more than anything, writing fiction, you know, with the exception of my wife and children. And, uh, but what got me back to writing, what ironically wasn't the love of it, although it should have been, it was the dread of not doing it. You know, that's what really it was the fear of failing 
to pursue it. And I, I had the great fortune as, a, as an undergraduate of studying under a visiting writer at Yale named Peter Matheson, who was a great novelist and naturalist. And he had great faith in me and, and, and expressed that very frankly to me. And he was so disappointed when I went to work on Wall Street and, uh, and said, you know, Amor, I think you should, um, you should assume, because Wall Street is, it really grabs people's attention, I think you should assume that your, your life as a writer is over. You know, when I was 26 or so. And uh, and that really, that's what hung over me, you know. And, and I kind of think Peter was my kind of, he was both my, my mentor, but also my Jacob Marley, you know, mm-hmm. shaking his chains at me and saying, you know, don't, <laughs> don't fail to do what, you know, what you've been called to do. And, and so that was really what got me back in, into going to work again. Hey, more tolls of A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility, his most recent novel, The Lincoln Highway. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Melanie writes, I read a wonderful, thoroughly interesting magazine story published maybe 10 years ago about a man who, after leaving his job, took his young daughter on a road trip on the Lincoln Highway from San Francisco's Golden Gate Park to New York City and stopped in many of the small forgotten towns along its route. And of course, he wrote a riveting account of his adventures, which to this day put that trip on my bucket list of things to do someday when gas and hotel prices come down. (laughs) Right. Um, do you have any advice for people who are thinking of starting to write, you know, say after the age of 40 or something? Yeah. After the age of, I, you know, for, for me, the, 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 the best advice, particularly to younger people, and I'll come back to older people, but it was always just read, write, repeat. You know, that, that's really what it all is, is about, right? Is that you, you find someone that you read their work and, and it, it lights you up, it intrigues you, it impresses you keeps reading that author. It's amazing how many American readers, or readers worldwide, I suppose, read a book and they're like, oh, that was great. And you say, well, did you like their other books? And they say, well, I haven't read any of their other books. Yeah, and that's, that, was, that, that seems to be a natural thing. We kind of move on to the next thing. And, and maybe, we're, maybe we're worried that we're not going to like the other books by that writer. But, um, but if you love a writer, go back and read other works by them and, I, and read them in a row. You know, I like to read people chronologically and, and in a way, your interest and understanding of their work, how impressed you are, just grows in, in leaps and bounds as you begin to read multiple works by them and, and put them together. And, um, and so, so as I say, you read something like that and then you write and you allow that to influence you. You don't copy what they've done, but you sort of take what you've learned in a way and, and, and use it to sort of reapproach your own craft. And you just keep doing that over and over and over, allowing yourself to be influenced by different writers, going back and writing in a slightly different way and refining your own approach to the craft over time. You know, uh, now, you know, that said, you know, I think that ultimately the, you, you really do have to just sort of sit down and do it, you know, and, and writing is, uh, it's, it, it would be, it's a terrible mistake to, in any of the arts, I'm sure, to wait for inspiration. You know, inspiration is what happens between nine and noon. You know, that's, you know, if you are at your desk, that's where it happens. You know, it doesn't happen while you're, you know, wandering across the Brooklyn Bridge and, you know, looking at the clouds. I mean, it can too, but, but I mean, if, if you, it is, I would, don't wait for the inspiration. Have your, your discipline, sit down and, and the inspiration will come, you know, but it is, a, it is a, in a way it's a job. 
Well, speaking of inspiration, Eva writes, great interview. We've loved all your books in our book club. What are you working on uh, yeah. now? <laughs> I, I am working on a new book. It does take me a few years. It's a book I've been thinking about for a number of years already and, and, and designing for a number of years. And it begins in Cairo in the 1940s, and it ends in New York City in 1999. And that is all I will tell you about it. And here's another listener who writes, can you explain why it takes so long for your books to be issued in paperback? <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, uh, that, maybe that's my fault. You know, um, it, it is, uh, I love the hardcover, you know, and I understand it's a little more expensive than the paperback. It's a little heavier, um, but uh, there, there's an economic reality to that. And so I'll be frank about that. The, the author makes more money in a hardcover book, but so does the, the independent bookstore, you know, and so does uh, the publisher. And so, um, you, there is, it's going to go to paperback and once it goes to paperback, it'll never come back to hardcover. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do want it, the, the way the industry is going to look at it is as long as the book is doing reasonably well in hardcover, we'll probably st just stay with that. Um, and it's been nice to see even a gentleman in Moscow, I, I, people will be looking for the hardcover because they'd say it's a, it's a book they want to keep, let's say, and, uh, and, and they don't want it to deteriorate on the shelf in the way that a paperback will. Um, so, yeah, there's a little economic reason. There's a little bit of, you know, uh, 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 stubbornness or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I'm glad to have the book in hardcover for as long as it can be. Well, you have been identified also as one of the few best-selling novelists who direct readers to buy books on IndieBound as opposed to, say, Amazon first. Yes. And so part of that also is, is important to you in terms of just making sure it's strengthening independent uh, bookstores as well. That's right. Well, Ian Mortoles, it's really been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your writing process and how you find inspiration. Mina, thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. Amor Tolls, his most recent novel, The Lincoln Highway. Thanks to listeners for their reflections and questions as well. And we go out with the song First Aid Kit, Waitress Song, one of the songs that inspires uh, Amor Tolls as he's writing The Lincoln Highway. Susie Britton produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.